Welcome to Event FOMO. This is your audio catch-up for events you wish you would have gone to but didn't get to. No wonder FOMO, the fear of missing out, is a thing. With the magic of podcasting, we bring you the event's essentials. In this episode, we take you to the University of Melbourne Medical School Reunion Panel Discussion, Medical Research, Evolution, and Progress. This panel features insights from professors Sarah Jane Dawson and Bruce Campbell and Dr. Sybil McCauley. And the discussion is hosted by journalist Natasha Mitchell. Now I'm really thrilled to welcome to the stage three current researchers at institutions in and around the campus area. They're doing extremely exciting work and without further ado, just jump on the stage. We've got Associate Professor Bruce Campbell, Associate Professor Sarah Jane Dawson and Dr Sybil McCauley. Please welcome them. They are all high flyers, they are all clinician scientists, all working at the international frontier of their fields and all have had their lives and careers shaped by this institution that you're celebrating and part of this weekend. So wonderful to have you and I'll just introduce you all briefly. Associate Professor Bruce Campbell is a neurologist and is the newly appointed Head of Stroke in the Department of Neurology at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, where he worked for some years before this role. He's a Principal Research Fellow and Associate Professor with the Department of Medicine. He's also Clinical Director of the National Stroke Foundation, amongst many other roles. Associate Professor Sarah Jane Dawson is a medical oncologist and clinician scientist running her own lab at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre, focused on developing um, improved blood-based biomarkers for detecting and monitoring cancer. And she did her PhD and postdoc studies at the Uni of Cambridge, but we managed to get her back home. (laughs) Excellent. And we've got Dr Sybil McCauley, an endocrinologist and a clinician scientist as well. Her clinical work is at St Vincent's Hospital, Melbourne. She's a senior research fellow in the School of Medicine, focused on type 1 diabetes and technology and exercise and artificial pancreas systems and all sorts of interesting things and also trained here at the University of Melbourne. So wonderful to have you all here. Before we get to the really exciting frontiers of what you're up to, what's the broad field that you're each engaged with? You know, what's the sort of scope of the problems you're trying to solve? Bruce. So I'm a stroke doctor. So uh I'm basically a neurologist who's interested in treating stroke patients when they come into hospital and so we have this issue that brain cells are dying very rapidly and whatever we do needs to be very quick. So my research has been primarily initially around brain imaging. Uh, We have this issue that as much as neurologists love to be detectives and diagnose with our hands and our tendon hammers and things, you can't quite tell what's going inside the brain in terms of bleeding or blocked blood vessels without a CAT scan. So my PhD was all around what can we use in the way of CAT scans and MRIs to diagnose not just is it a stroke and what type of stroke, but is the brain still salvageable? Because fortunately, when we block a blood vessel, a lot of people have natural bypass vessels that can keep that brain ticking over for some hours, many hours in some cases, and uh, that gives us the opportunity to intervene with treatments to open the arteries particularly, maybe in the future with fancy agents to protect the brain cells during that time, but at the moment it's really just about opening the plumbing and uh, getting Getting the blood blood back to the brain. After my PhD, I started to apply that imaging that we developed to clinical trials, initially with clot retrieval, so that's going in with an angiogram, much like the cardiologists have done for many years, and physically retrieving the clot. 
and then more recently trying to enhance that with intravenous drugs before you even get to the cath lab because we can do that potentially even in an ambulance now. Time is of an essence, isn't it? From looking at the range of clinical trials that you've been part of and the way in which, and we'll get to those, have been translated into clinical practice quite quickly, it seems. We're almost in some sort of golden age for stroke. But what was it like 10, 20, 30 years ago? Well, it's interesting. My mentors, uh, Steve Davis, Jeff Donnan, really set up stroke around Australia, particularly in Melbourne. has been a great hub for stroke. And when they started in 1977, which was the year I was born, they have a lovely slide saying these are the evidence-based treatments for stroke in 1977. It's completely blank. They didn't even have aspirin at that stage. So, wow. uh, you know, in that time, we've had CT scanners and MRI come through. We've had aspirin. We've had clot dissolving. We've had clot retrieval. It's really transformed enormously um, yeah. in that. That's 30, extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. You went from losing your loved one to now potentially having your loved one recover yeah. quite a great degree if you get in in, in time. Yeah, if you, you're lucky to have those natural bypass vessels and you get treatment quickly. Yeah. yeah. Sybil, what about you? Give us a, a potted summary if you like. Thank you. So I am an endocrinologist at St Vincent's and my research work is in type 1 diabetes. So while other researchers are looking to prevent and cure the illness, I am working on biochemical and mechanical solutions to address glucose control and relieve the burden of living with type 1 diabetes. So as many in the audience may recall, with the autoimmune destruction of beta cells in type 1 diabetes, both the sensing of glucose levels as well as the production and secretion of insulin are lost. And it's almost coming up to the centenary of the discovery of insulin. So in 1921, Banting and Best discovered insulin. Soon after, two years later, won the Nobel Prize for this discovery. And that turned type 1 diabetes from a universally fatal illness mm. to a disease that could be treated. And in that subsequent um, 97 years, we have had progressive improvements in both the glucose monitoring and the insulin treatments available to people living with this condition. And then really in the last five and 10 years, there's been an explosion of new technology that allows us to improve the monitoring of glucose and improve the delivery of insulin via pumps with a lot more flexibility. And then very recently in the background, while I was doing my PhD, looking on these two aspects separately, then we had the formation of closing the loop. So this involves where the human doesn't need to decide the dose of insulin to be delivered, but there can be an automated system. So this is the idea of an artificial pancreas exactly. in a sense. So an artificial, it's doing all the thinking for you. An artificial pancreas requires continuous glucose monitoring. That data is then sent in real time to an algorithm. That algorithm computes the dose of insulin to be automatically delivered via a pump. And then if that system's all working well, the glucose can stay beautifully in a physiological range and the wearer cannot have that both physical and emotional burden of managing their type 1 diabetes. Mm. Not without its challenges. Because, of course, you know, all sorts of variables affect how it operates and what data you feed into it. What are all the variables? But we'll get to that. Sarah-Jane, yourself, you're working at Peter Mac. Mm -hmm. Wonderful that it's moving yes. 
right here. Well, it has moved, hasn't it? Has it? Moved, yeah. Yes. So just give us a little potted summary of what you're up to because it's such a really interesting frontier in terms of diagnostics and management of cancer. Absolutely. So I'm a medical oncologist. Clinically, I look after patients with breast cancer. But my research for a long time has really been focused on trying to develop better tests that we can apply in the clinic for cancer patients to help with our treatment decisions to ultimately try and improve outcomes for individuals living with cancer. But the area I work specifically in is trying to develop blood-based tests, so-called liquid biopsies. And that really refers to trying to measure something called circulating tumour DNA in the bloodstream of patients with cancer. We know that all of us actually have small fragments of cell-free DNA in our bloodstream and that DNA is being released from healthy cells in our body. But cancer patients actually have much higher levels of this circulating DNA because the tumour itself can release this DNA into the bloodstream. So by cell-free, it's not attached to any cellular structure? No, these are very small fragments of DNA that are just being released as the tumour cells are turning over and growing that is released into our bloodstream. And we've known about this for quite some time. I mean, the presence of cell-free DNA was first described in the late 1940s. And in the late 1970s, it was recognised that you could actually pick up tumour-specific DNA in the bloodstream of cancer patients. But it was very difficult to detect. It's essentially like looking for a needle in a haystack. Often the amounts of this circulating tumour DNA are very small. So what's changed recently is the improvements in technology. Now we have much better sequencing technologies to be able to characterise these really small fragments of circulating tumour DNA and that's really led to an explosion in this kind of research over the last So you years. know now potentially what to do with that information and what it can actually tell you that's meaningful in terms of understanding the specifics of the cancer that someone has. Absolutely. So now we can essentially characterise the genomic features of an individual's cancer from a simple blood test and you know that opens up a wealth of opportunities. It can tell us information that may be helpful for screening, maybe being able to detect cancers earlier. Once someone has undergone treatment for a cancer, it may tell us information about whether that cancer is in remission or whether that individual might be at risk of relapse. When patients are undergoing active treatment for cancer, these levels might tell us something about whether patients are responding or not to therapy. And then we can also couple that with understanding, you know, these important molecular genomic features and that can tell us something about why an individual's cancer may develop resistance to a, a mm. particular type of therapy. Mm. So the amount of information we can garner through these approaches is very powerful. And I think the other exciting thing is it's actually relevant across many different cancer types. So it's something that's actually applicable across a large number of different malignancies. Because so you've also looked at, you're looking at leukaemia as well as breast cancer. That's right. So although clinically, I work in breast cancer, our research sort of spans many different tumour streams because this is a technique that's applicable across lots of different cancer types, both solid malignancies and also haematological malignancies mm. as well. I'll come back to you about, because one of the great challenges in, in cancer treatment has been the genetic and genomic understanding of clinicians as well. Mm. So that translational story is so interesting for, in each of your cases, I think. And Bruce, you've been very fortunate to be involved in randomised clinical trials that have been translated extremely quickly yeah. across to clinical practice on about three different fronts, I think, including one that's just been announced this year, but a yeah. few years ago in about yeah. 2013, something really yeah. quite radical shifted. 
Yeah, Tell we us were about thrombectomy your story. So uh, clot retrieval for stroke was something that had been going on in hospitals like the Royal Melbourne for maybe 20 years in a tiny number of patients. They might do 10 or 13 cases a year, whereas now we do almost 300. And so the technique was there, but there was a... Just describe what that is for, for those who aren't specialists yeah, so in stroke in the audience. An angiogram, so putting a little needle into the groin, feeding a tube up the artery into the brain arteries and then using some sort of device to remove the clot. And... Initially, so it's a mechanical action. Yeah, initially it was clot dissolving drugs and then there were some serendipitous discoveries that certain snares and other things that had been used for other purposes, retrieving foreign bodies and things, became used for retrieving clots. And then um, a stent, so a metal cage that had usually been used just to shape coiling of aneurysms actually was found actually to be really good at retrieving clots. So that was around 2010 that they found that that device, which had been around for other purposes, was useful. So recent. Yeah. And for us as neurologists taking our patients up there, we could see that this actually started to work much better than the previous devices. There's a thing called the Mercy device. In ER, they, they really highlighted the Mercy device and we used to joke about we'd have to get, be merciful to the patient to do this because it felt pretty uncomfortable Awful. as you drag this device through the uh. artery. But uh, that wasn't very effective and this new device really, we could see, was making a difference. So it was really taking that device, taking the imaging which told us which patients had salvageable tissue uh, and putting those things together gave us a very powerful clinical effect. And because the devices were around and people had been doing this a trial, it was very easy to just translate that into clinical practice. We just had a tool that we rolled out. Yeah, no mean feat, though, to change clinical practice guidelines around the world, which is what essentially has happened. Yeah. It's gone global and everyone accepts this now as the best practice. Yeah, well, we were fortunate that there were some negative trials in 2013. That really reset everyone's equipoise because, like everything, doctors think we know what we want to do. And people weren't really enrolling all the patients into those trials that were negative. So it reset everyone's equipoise. Everyone got enrolled in trials. There were five trials from around the world, our Australian one being one of those. And they all hit the New England Journal around the same time. And that five trial impact is pretty unprecedented. And yeah. that's what really drove global practice change. You must have just been rejoicing. Incredibly satisfying. Yeah. Because it could take a whole lifetime before you saw a clinical outcome of your fundamental research. Yeah. So it's, uh, as I said, we weren't really doing fundamental research. No, no, no. <laughs> All right, okay. But what about the drug comparison that you've published on this year, drugs that break up clots? Yeah. That's also looking set to be translated across. Again, because it's quite close to the, the, the clinic anyway. So okay. um, we've used a drug called TPA alteplase for 20 years in stroke and it's a great drug for dissolving clots, but you have to give it as an infusion over an hour and uh, it's, it sort of dissolves about one in three large artery occlusions. So we looked at a drug called tenecteplase, which is genetically modified form of TPA. You can give it as a bolus. To be honest, that's probably the best thing about tenecteplase is that you can just give it and then get on with everything else you want to do with the patient, which might be shipping them off to another hospital uh, so you don't have these drips tangling people during transfer. But it is slightly more effective. That's what we showed in our trial is you get the artery open twice as often. Still one in five rather than one in ten, but you know that, that translated to a clinical benefit for the patients and it gives us a platform to then build other treatments and faster treatment on. One of the many projects that you're overseeing, but you are Chief Investigator of the Changing Practice in Stroke project. So this is um, obviously this idea of changing practice, informing practice is front and centre for you as a clinician. Very much. I mean, I've been brought up in a, a great centre for clinical trials and the, the really 
exciting thing is that you can take an idea, test it and then implement it and in Stroke we've got a great network around Australia where we can implement and I have this role with the Stroke Foundation, our president's in the third row there, um, where we write the guidelines for clinical practice in Australia too. So it's, it's a very tight community, we all know each other and, and we do implement what we find really quite rapidly. Don't you love it when things work? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> When systems work, though, that's the great pleasure, I think, in, in often in communities that are uh, kind of bogged down by bureaucracy. It's nice to have a nimble sort of process and system in place. Sybil, you're working with technology in interesting ways. I find that wouldn't have been something that you might have thought about at the outset when you were training in medicine to also use technologies to fully enable your clinical practice. So tell us about that relationship. Look, it's often circumstance and probably my interest started in 2007. I was filling in at St Vincent's with, on the endocrine ward and they, after a number of years working, St Vincent's Institute led by Tom Kay and then at the hospital with David Goodman and Glenn Ward, they'd been working on islet cell transplants. So this is a transplant of the pancreatic cells for people with type 1 diabetes. Instead of being a whole organ transplant, the cells are infused to replace that lost function. And it was just fantastic. They'd been working on it for a number of years and then we had our first successful transplant at St Vincent's in late 2007. And all of a sudden, this lifelong disease requiring insulin and in people who had very severe metabolic instability, the first person who was in the news after that, she all of a sudden had her life back. She couldn't cross the road because her glucose levels were so unpredictable that she could drop with her glucose levels, have a hypoglycemic episode that was so severe she couldn't even cross the road. And so seeing that this research that had been based on some founding principles developed in Canada with the Edmonton program had been developed locally and all of a sudden this was making a big difference to the person there. By the time a few years later I went through my endocrine advanced training and finished training, there was some other mm. options being developed for type 1 diabetes. So the transplants are a great opportunity for some people. They require immunosuppression and also these are deceased donor transplants so the numbers are very limited. But then other technology was developing so instead of painful finger pricks that people with type 1 diabetes would have to do 10 or more times a day to check their blood glucose, all of a sudden there were little filaments, hair-like filaments that could sit under the skin for a week and continuously monitor glucose. Insulin pumps were being developed that could continuously infuse very flexible dosing of insulin. And so by the time I was finishing my advanced training, my PhD research was in these areas. And because things were changing quite quickly, there was not a lot known even about the devices that were on the market. So mm. two of the studies in my PhD were looking at insulin pumps, one with adjustment and one with exercise. And in fact, the results of those were um, put into guidelines in Australia and some overseas exercise recommendations even before I'd submitted my thesis. That's amazing. Because it was yeah. just a really quick turnaround. And then fast forward... You had to understand how exercise was a, a factor for how people would work with insulin pumps. Because, you know, that's an issue, isn't it, for people? And it's an anxiety for people with type 1 diabetes, how to manage exercise and, and the, their diabetes without having 
hypoglycemic incident. Exactly. It can be very challenging. I was speaking earlier this month at a symposium for people with type 1 diabetes and some people who'd been diagnosed decades ago said that their specialist told them do not exercise. It's just too risky and the chance of hypoglycemia. And it's amazing how much the tides have turned now that therapies are more flexible. Like the rest of the diabetes management, we can adjust the therapies around people's lifestyle, their food and their exercise and other things to fit in with that. So we certainly would encourage exercise and we now need to work out strategies to give people as options for different types of exercise. So it's a it's quite a challenging area. It's a challenging area for an artificial pancreas because things change very quickly with exercise, but the insulin that's delivered subcutaneously takes a while to reach a circulation, takes a while to have its full action, and then takes a while to stop working. So we need to, now that the first artificial pancreas systems are being developed, we need to look forward and work out what other information can we feed in automatically as well as glucose to then allow this algorithm to work quickly mm. and adjust what's being delivered. To understand the body that they're working alongside. Exactly, and then have the person who's wearing it not be involved to manually decide the doses and the changes and be able to get on with their life and their exercise. And so I guess that's the, the fundamental premise. How close are we to an artificial pancreas or one of these closed-loop insulin pump systems being deployed and being widespread, being commercially available? So it's... a Great question for this time. Last Mm. year in 2017 was the very first early system released onto the market in the United States. So it gained FDA approval last year. And so there is one early automated system of insulin delivery now available overseas. And the plan is... So it's been approved? It's been approved overseas in the US. It's recently been approved in Europe and in Australia. So we work with the TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, as well as looking at medications and devices. We're also looking at the algorithm itself here because we have, it's almost quite a new area for the regulatory authority. And I think in the US, the regulatory authority was working very closely with the researchers and they worked together on developing this to a level where everyone was happy it was safe enough. Well, the FDA has prioritised prioritise that kind of collaborative approach with key areas of interest and, and demand, I think. Yeah. Exactly. And this was the one TGA of the doesn't first seem to have done times it. they'd been involved in the research development. And so, in fact, I think even the researchers were quite surprised how quick mm. it got through. So here we need the TGA to accept the algorithms and the whole system for it to be regulatory approved. It's also an interesting question because the other thing at the moment is that people are doing it themselves. So there's DIY artificial pancreas systems that are now being used both here in Australia and overseas. There's this ever-increasing diabetes community who are using some commercial hardware together with open source algorithms that are um, available on the internet to build their own systems. And so these do not have regulatory (laughs) approval. Patients will come to clinic using a system and then the clinicians actually need to know how to support them, how to navigate the legal and ethical ramifications of this. And in actual fact, their work is driving the medical research to get faster and faster. (laughs) So it's a really exciting time for these reasons of these areas coming together. And I would have never anticipated that that's where it would be now with the consumers, the people living with the condition, teaching us so much about the therapies. Well, in some sense, that's a fundamental change in medicine on all fronts, isn't it? That the patient is us, patients, are empowered to ask deeper questions probe more deeply. We have access to databases. We have access to PubMed. You know, we can do a lit search. We can turn up with our lit search to our specialist. 
that's a really dynamic exchange that's going on. It is. When the Twitter hashtag is we are not waiting, that is the community <laughs> who are then developing their own systems and taking them to the clinic and showing the doctors and nurses. And it's a real turnaround and wow. we just have so much to learn from our patients. And Do you feel that? Because you so could much. feel very threatened. You could feel very nervous, very uncomfortable even, that your medical expertise are being challenged at every corner. Look, I'm excited. Oh, good. Yes. <laughs> right attitude. Uh, Sarah-Jane, mm. let's come back to this biomarker that you've been developing. Mm. So what can you take from the circulating DNA from a tumour? What information is meaningful, is mm. useful and in what way? Mm. There's two real key pieces of information that we can obtain. One is about the amount of circulating tumour DNA that's present because that can tell us something about the tumour burden or the extent of cancer that an individual may have. Mm. And the second is the molecular information that we can harness from this kind of testing. So we can understand the, the genomic characteristics of the individual's cancer from studying that through the circulating tumour DNA. Now, look, when the human genome was sequenced and the big public announcement came finally in 2003, a lot was made of the promise of personalised medicine and that we'd all, you know, have our DNA sequenced within 10 years or something like that and uh, all this information would land on a chip in the GP's clinic and, hey, presto, all sorts of stuff could be solved. We'd have personalised medicine. Mm. This was the promise with cancer too, that we could genetically sequence tumours and know so much and do so much. Have we got there yet? I think we're certainly on the journey, but yes, there is still so much to learn. I think, yes, there are a lot of sceptics about precision medicine. Are there? I think what are their have, doubts? Yeah, I guess their doubts is that it hasn't delivered on all the promises so far, that it's been too slow to deliver on that. But I think we have made a lot of progress when you think that this is still a relatively short amount of time that we've been working with this really complex genomic data and trying to understand how that can then feed into decision-making for patients. It, it relies on, you know, having good therapeutic development on the back of that to be able to offer uh, new therapies for patients that are going to be effective with an understanding of what the genomic makeup of an individual's disease is. So I think there are certainly stellar examples where precision medicine approaches are currently being very effective in cancer management, but I still think we've got a long way to go. Mm. What are the stellar examples? A good example in breast cancer, one is re that has revolutionised the treatment of a certain subtype of mm. breast cancer, which is called uh, HER2 positive or HER2 amplified breast cancer. That's a breast cancer that's driven by a genetic change in the gene called HER2. And we've developed targeted therapies for this. That started with a drug called Herceptin, but we now have a range of targeted therapies that are active against HER2, another recent drug called Pertuzumab. And I think we're actually getting very close to being able to cure patients with HER2 positive breast cancer that's sort of responses that we're seeing with early stage HER2 positive breast cancer now are really remarkable and you know all of that change has happened through understanding this initial genomic change which is that HER2 amplification and then developing targeted therapies against mm. that. So what would it take for all of us if we were being diagnosed with cancer to have that blood test and have mm. our circulating DNA associated with the tumour sequenced and utilised, what would it take for that to become everyday practice and yeah. useful? Ultimately, these tests are not reimbursed for patients at the current time. So I guess the, the research 
body and evidence is growing so that hopefully that will eventually lead to evidence informing policy change for these tests to be reimbursed. And I think we need to continue to demonstrate the clinical utility of these tests. If we can show that these tests are making a difference and they're leading to improved outcomes for patients, then that provides the impetus for you know us working towards reimbursement of these tests to make them more widely accessible to patients outside of the research setting and in routine clinical practice. So you're a clinician and your mm. primary area is breast cancer. Mm. Have you used some of the work that you're doing in the lab with patients that you have? Can you? Absolutely. So in this precinct, we do collect blood samples from really all patients that are having treatment for advanced breast cancer that are being treated at the Peter Mac, and we're doing liquid biopsies, circulating tumour DNA tests on those patients, and we're characterising the genomic alterations in those tests. And, that and then is, what? And then we are through that information, guiding treatment choices for patients. So, you know, it can provide information that may be helpful in trying to decide whether patients should pursue, for example, a certain clinical trial of a novel agent that may be guided by the genomic information we've harnessed from their circulating tumour DNA. Mm. We're only doing that at a small level with our research studies in, in this precinct. What we need to be able to do is have more outreach, have more patients be able to access this, not only through Victoria but also nationally to be able to reach into these programs so they can also have access access to these kind of tests. What would a clinical trial look like mm. using this technique? What would the design be? I alluded to the fact earlier that there's not just one single clinical application of this technology. So we could think about it as an early diagnostic tool or as a disease monitoring tool. So a number of clinical trials actually need to be done to understand the clinical utility of using these tests for all of those different clinical scenarios. One example that I could allude to is, for example, a patient with cancer, we want to understand if that patient harbours a particular genomic alteration in their cancer, we can harness that information from their liquid biopsy and then decide whether they should be randomised to a particular targeted therapy against that mutation or not. But that's just one example and one potential clinical application mm. of this kind of technique. Mm, gotcha. Just a, a broad question about early career researchers. I mean, you're beyond the early career phase, all of you now, but early career researchers in Australia, early career scientists struggling, let's face it. I mean, every conversation I have with early career researchers are anxious conversations about where the next round of funding is going to come from. Can they get a chance to lead a lab independently? It's extremely challenging. They're cobbling together part-time contracts. They're not sure whether they're going to get anything beyond the second, third, fourth postdoc. It's hard times. And I'm just interested in your impressions on what we need to change to foster early career researchers in the sciences, particularly in your roles as clinician scientists. Bruce? I think as clinician scientists we are somewhat fortunate you in are. that we have a backup plan. So if I don't get a grant I can still practice neurology and uh, carry on and you know, I can cross-subsidise a little bit as well. So we are much more fortunate in that way than people who are pure scientists. Did you um, make that a conscious choice? I didn't, but I was advised by some very wise person who said, because I did originally just want to do medical research, and they said, well, you should do medicine mm. and uh, work through that and see where you get. And I love the clinical aspect. So actually, although I started doing molecular biology last century, when I finished my medical degree, I actually went for a much more clinical specialty that sat neatly alongside what I do with patients. But yeah, it, it is a big challenge for those who don't have that clinical backup. And I hope that the new NHMRC system where you get investigator grants that give you project funding as well so you're not stuck with a salary but not project funding or vice versa. Yeah. But, you know, we'll have to see how that new system pans out. Sybil? So I think 
agree as a clinician scientist there's those dual options and certainly as someone who's done clinical research I think that beyond the traditional NHMRC and that sort of funding models there's also a lot more now with philanthropy mm. we've got our philanthropic St Vincent's um, funder person here Richard and we also so philanthropy partnering with industry I think is becoming more and more of a pathway that people see as vital and necessary for certain types of research and I know for our areas we work closely with engineers and people who develop the devices yeah. and we have clinical insights into how they what type of devices they might need to develop and then how they might work and it's really that cross-discipline collaboration that I've found to be really important and um, so the industry funding model certainly has a very different timing to the NHMRC grants. Philanthropy doesn't just sit in Australia. Certainly my funding's based in New York and they were happy to fund research in Australia that's going to be relevant to everyone globally. And so I think just Who's funding out, the work? So this is JDRF. They are the type 1 diabetes philanthropic organisation looking at research, supporting people living with type 1 diabetes and... Ideally, their model and my model is to cease to exist. The aim is to cure the disease, to prevent the disease. And there's in the a meantime, plan. <laughs> in the meantime, there's a lot of work to do because that isn't on the horizon next year. How did you get that line of funding? Was that institutional support here in Australia making that possible or did you have to go jump on a plane and... Interesting question. So I had had dealings with JDRF Australia who are based in Sydney and work in Australia and the person, contact person I knew up there alerted me to an opportunity and in fact their opportunity was for a clinician who's doing clinical based type 1 diabetes research who wants to be at that clinical coalface to do further work in that area and I guess I was busy attempting to start writing my thesis but thought I will take a couple of weeks out to put in this application because this is exactly the type of work I have been working on would love to be able to contribute more. And so it was, I guess, that, that niche area, it happened to be a good fit. And then now that I'm working through that postdoc research and applying for further project funding in the area, it's great when the fit is really there. Mm. So their aim and what their organisation is trying to achieve is exactly what myself and people around me are working Incredible. on for our clinical research. Yeah, and serendipitous by the sounds too. I mean, it just goes to show how much you've got to seize an opportunity when you see it. Hard. There's an anxiety in relation to that itself, I think. What about what about you, Sarah-Jane? Mm. What do you think of this trajectory? I mean, you've had the experience of the UK and Australia, mm. insights from both, mm. but I think this story about the challenges for early career researchers cutting through and developing long-term careers is universal, is the sense I get. It is, but I still think there are a lot of opportunities, particularly for clinician scientists and when I'm speaking to, to junior doctors I just really encourage them to find what it is that they feel passionate about and what drives them because ultimately if they pursue that they're likely to be successful and if I'm sure you talk to all three of us we've all followed a slightly different path to get to where we have got to and it's not necessarily that there's one route and one route that, that fits everyone um, and I hope that I guess the demonstration of more people that are successfully combining their clinical careers with scientific research as well and demonstrating that it is possible to have a career as a clinician scientist that hopefully that will encourage the younger generation coming through as well to to, to go after those goals. And what about the it. older generation? Can you go back and become a, a, a scientist clinician if you've been a GP and you want to go back and specialise? Do people ever do that? 
Absolutely. I think it's definitely possible if you have the passion and the drive to do it. And um, the right mentor yes. who yep. will say, mm. who isn't too ageist about mm. it. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. Well, I think we've had a real treat this afternoon and the uh, uh, fun continues for you all for your reunion weekend. Join me in thanking Bruce Campbell, Sarah-Jane Dawson and Sybil McCauley. A big thanks to the medical school for hosting this event and thanks to you for listening. This episode was edited by Buffy Gorilla and Arch Cuthbertson. And this podcast was made possible by the University of Melbourne. 